Amen. And please turn to Revelation chapter 22. And Lord willing, this will be the 49th and final message in the book of Revelation. I've entitled it Final Exhortations from the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, really, uh, G.K. Beale, beholding to him for, for much of what we say here tonight. Uh, he summed it up well, I thought. So I'll be paraphrasing a lot of what he had to say. And uh, really going at the way, outlined the way that he outlined it. He talked about five closing exhortations. So these are final ex exhortations from the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already looked at two of them. Uh, and, um, but we'll just look at them ever so briefly again as we go through here. But I'd like to read our new verses 12 through 21 in one sitting. So please, 22 verse 12. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have right to the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And thus ends the book. So let's deal with the exhortations in the book. First exhortation uh, is found in verses 6 and 7. And uh, we'll just read them again. We'll just go through very quickly here. And we dealt with this last week. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Almost the same wording that we see in chapter one, verse one. And the exhortation is found in verse seven. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so the exhortation, of course, is to heed and obey. And Revelation deals with the most important words of uh, life and eternity. And Revelation also shows us the things we can expect as the church. As we've gone through, and uh, you know, we've dealt with the cycles that we have seen in the book of Revelation. Uh, the church will face uh, temptations, difficulties, troubles, trials, heresies, persecution, um, not every church in every place at every time, but um, every church somewhere in every time, or churches per se. And so that's what we've seen as we've gone through the book. 
And uh, so keep, keep the words of the prophecy of this book is the exhortation. The second exhortation is a call to holiness in verse number 8. <coughs> I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And we've seen that before. We've seen that. He, that's not the first time he's fallen down before an angel had been told to get up. You notice when he fell down before the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, uh, Christ took the worship and allowed the worship because he is God. But uh, an angel, no. We don't worship angels. We don't worship Mary as, as Pastor Ken was reminding us again this morning. No. It's the exhortation. Worship God. Very simple, very profound. That's what we do. And that's what we're doing tonight. That's what we do when we gather on the Lord's Day. We worship God. And we looked at that last week too. The third exhortation is a call to holiness. And we dealt with verse 11 already. And uh, we spent some time on it because it's a difficult verse. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. It, it sounds as though, you know, God doesn't care, you know. And that it's just, uh, you know, that's the way it goes, you know. Evildoers, evildoers, and, and righteous, righteous. And of course, we know from the whole of Scripture that's not, to, not really the case. But what we have here, uh, in fact, we'll find that as we finish the chapter here tonight. But uh, it needs to be understood in the sense of hearing and hardening. Hearing and hardening. A Pharaoh, a, a grand example of hardening. The more he saw, the mo more he heard, well, the worse he got. Plague upon plague, 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 plague. Nine plagues, tenth plague, finally, he came to his breaking point. Get out of here, leave as soon as you can. No, never see your face again. Well, he'd said that earlier, too. Well, what happened? They got to the Red Sea, and he chased after him. His heart was still hard, and he died, you know. And it's just a fact of the matter. We saw it in the seven trumpets. We saw it in the seven bowls. Uh, the more the plagues came, the harder the people came, and, and the more obstinate they were against God, you know. And so that's what he's talking about. And as God's wrath is poured out, men curse God instead of turning to God. But of course, as it says here, there are those who hear, there are those that heed, and there are those that turn. Now, new material for us, and it's part of the third exhortation, is verse 12. Behold, I'm coming soon. Well, we've heard that many times. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the judge. And there will be a judgment, and everyone will be judged. You say, well, we've already seen that in the book of Revelation too. Well, this is the recap. <laughs> this, is, this is actually winding up the things that we've seen as we've gone through the book here. And we can be thankful, and, and this is from Beale, we can be thankful that Christ is omniscient and omnipresent because as the righteous judge, he cannot be fooled, and his judgment is just, 
and uh, he knows all things, and he is everywhere. He sees all, and nothing can be hidden from him. So he is the only righteous and true judge that can judge without error, you know. No errors, and even no technicalities, you know. So we need to hear, heed, hear, turn, and obey. And, you know, our actions will show the true conditions of our heart. There's a lot of people that say they're Christian, but they're not. They're, they're false believers. And that's just the facts of the matter. You know, our actions show the true conditions of our heart. Has God really changed our heart? Has God really made us to be new creatures? Are we really looking to Him? It's not that we won't sin anymore, that's not the point. The point isn't that we're sinlessly perfect because we never will be on this earth. The point is the direction of our heart, the direction, the, the way that we're basically going. Pilgrim's Progress may be one of the greatest examples of that. Bunyan had that idea uh, well down and put it in his allegory very, very well. The fourth exhortation. Now we'll slow down a little bit. The fourth exhortation is found in verses 13 through 17. Uh, let me just read them in a block and then we'll go through them verse by verse. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so there's the, the fourth exhortation, verse 17. But let's go back to verse 13. As you know, I'm the Alpha and Omega. It's very, very simply the A to the Z in our language. Uh, he is the entirety. He's the beginning. He's the end. You know, the Alpha and Omega is said twice in, 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 uh, at the end of the book, 21 and 22, chapters 21 and 22, and uh, twice at the beginning of the book. So here we have it, and then here we have it again. We're told this truth in triplicate, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end. He's everything and everything in between uh, that has been created and that is holy and good and righteous and true. You know, if there's one thing the Bible tells us, and we went over this in our ladies' study yesterday, probably did with the men's the week before too, but if there's one thing the Bible tells us, it's that uh, God is the creator of heaven and earth and all things. No message comes more clearly through, well, I, I say sometimes that in exaggerated form. I haven't counted them up. But I'll tell you, the Bible says it over and over and over again, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And of course, all the things that are invisible 
You know, all the things that, that we only have rudimentary knowledge of, the heavenly host. He's the creator of all of that, of the entire universe, and of course the earth and us. You know, and uh, we're made in the image of God, which is an amazing thing. And one angel could uh, easily wipe out the city of Ontario if that was God's providential desire to do, which we're glad that it's not, you know. But one angel could do that. Uh, Christ talked about going to the cross, that 12, he could call 12 legions of angels. I think they could have easily taken care of the situation had he desired to do that. But instead, his desire was to save his people from their sins, because that's the reason that he came. He needed to fulfill his mission, and he did. And we can be, those of us that are here tonight that are Christians, can be eternally grateful to our great Lord who did exactly what he had planned to do with his Father from the foundation of the earth. Well, you know, we, we deal with that in verse 13. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. There's a lot we can say about that, but we've seen the white robes imagery before. It has to do with um, what uh, God has done to us. Again, we can thank Bunyan for uh, the fact that he talks about the white robes and then walking through the, the dirt of this land. We get them dirty, but that dirt doesn't destroy the white robes. Instead, they just need to be washed, and we need to go to God in, in cleansing from time to time and uh, make sure that our paths are the right paths. So the tree of life, we've seen that, you know, throughout the book. And, of course, this takes us back to Eden. And uh, how many times have we talked about that as we've gone through this? And, and uh, the parallels between Genesis 3.15 and the parallels between the Garden of Eden and all the Garden of Eden was supposed to be, and that uh, we, this will be better than the beginning. What we live in in the new heavens and the new earth will be better than what Adam was in in the Garden of Eden. So, you know, regeneration truly changes our heart and makes us desire to do God's will. And whatever good works we do is because of his work in us. Our role of salvation and the symbolic white robes come from God himself. Uh, just look at 19, verse 6. Flip back to 19.6 for a moment. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb, talking about the bride. And, of course, the bride is the church. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted to her, so it's given to us, and then, by God's grace, we're able to do his will, and uh, maybe not perfectly, but we are able to do his will, and to want to do his will and desire to do his will. It's our duty to persevere in the faith, but it's God's preservation that causes us to persevere. Now, the tree of life. And the tree of life, um, 
is pictured here uh, as, as the nations, you know. Um, you have the right to the tree of life. And uh, many times we see the nations being talked about uh, along with the tree of life. That's true in Isaiah. And it's also true in chapter 21, verse 24. If you look there, 21, 24. Uh, talking about the city. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. You know, and so we see that there. And we find out that the gates are never shut. Um, just nod your head. How many remember why the gates are never shut? There's a reason. Huh? I've seen people shaking their head. No, okay. There's no enemy. You don't have to shut your gates when there's no enemy. Uh, you don't have to lock your doors if no one's ever going to enter and, and steal anything from you. You could leave your doors wide open and it'd be fine. You know, <laughs> you know? well, there's no reason to, for the gates to be shut. This is figurative language, of course. We're talking about the new heaven, you know. But um, the gates are never shut. There are no enemies. They're all gone. They're in the lake of fire, actually, is where they are as we speak about this verse. Then verse 26 of chapter 21 Verse 26, just a little bit of review. They'll bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And that's where the nations come in here. And then notice what it says uh, down in 22, uh, verse 2, at the end of verse 2. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It wasn't just for Israel. For a people of every tribe, kindred, tongue and nationality, you know, it's just uh, ethnicity means nothing in the kingdom of God. You know, it, it just doesn't. There's equality at the foot of the cross. And uh, people strive for equality in today's world. And we see so often the equality they strive for is just another form of bigotry and another form of discrimination. You know, you don't cure discrimination by discrimination. At the foot of the cross, all are equal that are in Christ. And the, the Lord works that way for every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. And healing. The healing, of course, comes from him alone. And uh, the tree of life is the symbolic form that we find that at. You know, nations today, what do they do? Well, if you're over in Ukraine, you're in the midst of a battlefield with Russia. And it's a horrible, horrible death for Russians and Ukrainians alike. And if you live in Gaza, uh, well, uh, may the Lord have grace upon you if you live in Gaza. It's a horrible thing that's happening. But what a horrible thing happened to Israel. You know, and you cannot, uh, I can't fault them, maybe others do, but I can't fault them for going in and cleaning out a group of terrorists whose goal is from the river to the sea and uh, to wipe out Israel off the face of the map, which they've already wiped them off the face of their maps. But you can make a map that doesn't exist, and that's what they've done. And you can breed hatred, and that's what they've done. But my heart goes out to the Palestinians that, that don't feel that way and are suffering because of the wickedness of their government. The wickedness of their government, you know. War is a terrible thing. Whatever side you're on, war is a terrible thing. And the Bible tells us neither will they learn war anymore. Because the battles are over, the victory's been won, 
by the Lamb who rules as King of kings and Lord of lords without an enemy. He's King of kings and Lord of lords today, but they're still our enemies, and so they're still our battles. King of kings and Lord of lords without an enemy for all eternity, a benevolent dictator, if you want to put it that way. There could be no better government than one who loves you and cares about you infinitely and, and wants your very best and rules and governs you that way. There could be no better government than that. You'll never see a human government like that, but uh, that's the Lord Jesus Christ's government. He rules without an enemy and he rules benevolently for his people. Well, verse 15. Verse 15 talks about those that are outside the city. And it can be confusing. Now let's remember, the book of Revelation is not written chronologically. And uh, we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ return a number of times throughout the book. We've seen the final judgment a number of times throughout the book. Uh, we saw the lost um, cast into the lake of fire already. In fact, take a look at 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you say, well, there we go. And our Western way of thinking, we say, that's the end of that. We'll never hear of them again. And now here they are again. You know, uh, but um, blessed outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. No, it, it just means they never got in. They never got in. They're gone. And they're not camped outside the gates. They're not physically there just hoping that they'll get in. No, they're, they're gone. They're gone. It's a warning passage is what it is. And so the imagery is clear. There are those on the inside there are those on the outside. Look at verse 27 of chapter 21. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What we're seeing here, and I'm trying not to rush through it, what we're seeing here is a recapitulation and so it's being told to us again. We're not getting anything new, really. This is the conclusion. When you come to a conclusion, you rarely put something new in the conclusion. What you do is you reiterate what you've already been told and what you've said. The introduction tells you what's coming. The conclusion tells you what you've seen. And, and that's the way the book of Revelation is set up that way. You know. So the imagery is clear. There are those on the inside and there are those on the outside and it's eternally fixed. Of course, if you're not in the city and you're not of the city and you're not the bride of Christ, when I was trained, um, it was controversial. It shouldn't have been controversial. But it was controversial in the fundamentalist uh, uh, situation that I was trained in uh, because some, not all, but some were saying, well, the only bride of Christ are Baptists. If you're not a Baptist, you're not part of the bride of Christ. I'm not kidding. Okay, that was a doctrine that, that some professors were teaching. Others didn't believe it. But some were saying, if you're not a Baptist, you're not part of the bride of Christ. Well, what about those that aren't Baptists that are Christians? Well, yeah, they'll be, they'll be Baptists or they'll be non-Baptists that are Christians. 
but they'll be friends of the bridegroom. They won't be the bride. Ridiculous. And, and thankfully, many of the, my fun, of those fundamentalist brothers uh, agreed that that was ridiculous too. It's just, a, there's, there's so many oddities that, that come in, in various circles there. No, the church, universal. The church um, in heaven today, the church on earth today, every true church, bride of Christ, belong to him, you know. Well, we already saw those that were on the outside where they were, the lake of fire. But there's an interesting thing. In addition to the, the sins that we saw listed in 21.8, there's another one listed here that you would hardly think of as a sin. Dogs. I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you love your dogs? <laughs> oh, you, show, you didn't have to show your hands. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with loving your your little furry puppy dogs. Okay, that's absolutely fine. But there's imagery that the Bible uses for dogs, and it isn't pretty. It isn't good. No, it, it talks about, you know, they run in packs. They're filthy. Um, figuratively, they were at the foot of the cross, you know, barking and howling at the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 22, when he was being crucified. These are pictures that are given. The Israelites uh, of that day really had little or no use of dogs. You wouldn't find them having dogs in their house and petting them. And, you know, to them, they were dirty scavenger animals. But don't worry. If you raise your hand, your doggies, if you take care of them, are not dirty scavenger animals. They're very loyal pets. And, and, uh, and as, if a dog can love you, they love you. And, and I know you love them, so it's okay. But um, dogs is an imagery that's used here. Um, but think about what you think about the coyotes that, that prowl uh, around up in the northern parts here. And if you leave your little kitties or your little dogs outside, the coyotes will come and take them. You don't think too highly of them, do you? You know, and uh, the same thing with wolves, you know, that run in packs and howl. And that's more what the idea is to the Israelite of that day as dogs. So, and uh, I'll just turn to one scripture here. Let me get there real fast from Isaiah 52 that talks about this. Uh, in fact, if you'd like to, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 55 right now um, because we're going to go there next. But um, in Isaiah 52, it says this, just as an example. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's Isaiah 59, verse 6. Isaiah 59, verse 6. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. And then it says it again in verse 14. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. Of course, talking about the wicked that way. And that's the imagery that's being given to us. So it may seem strange uh, to have dogs listed in this um, uh, thing of sin. Well, in this list of sins. It's just talking about those that... Uh, will not be ruled over and do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So verse 16, I hope you kept your finger there. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And uh, when we have our, our singing service at 10 o'clock next week, 
We'll talk about, behold, a branch is growing of loveliest form and grace. And it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who springs from David's race. And, and uh, that's where we come from. And Pastor Ken did a good job talking about that this morning in this Advent series that we've been going through. And of course, the morning star, we saw that in 228, promised to those in Thyatira that endured and did not uh, go along with the evil ones that had been misguided in Thyatira. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And that's a very powerful passage if you think about it. The Holy Spirit bidding to come. The church bidding to come. And let the one who hears, there's a blessing to those that hear this book, say, come. So there's three testimonies saying, come. And if there's anything that the Bible has, it's invitations. But, as we've seen many times, the invitations of the Bible are qualified. There's qualifications to them, and here it is again. Come, come, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And he's paraphrasing from Isaiah 55. So if you're not already there, you can turn there now. Isaiah 55. And this threefold come is modeled after the threefold come in Isaiah. And you know that uh, water of life, we've talked about that uh, a few times through here. Jesus talked about that with the woman at the well, um, asking for that living water. This living water that we have here flows from the throne of God. And we're bidden to come. But you're not going to come if you're not thirsty. And you're not going to come if you don't care. You know, If you have no desire for the things of God, what are you going to do? You're going to run from God. You're going to fight against God. You're not going to care about God. And that was so many of us until the Lord conquered us and brought us to himself. Some of us early, some of us later, some of us going through very deep waters and difficult troubles and, and things that, uh, humanly speaking, we would regret. But providentially speaking, we really shouldn't regret because the Lord used those circumstances to bring us to himself. He has many children with diverse backgrounds. But as we heard our testimonies in church, they always end up the same, weren't they? I heard and my heart was opened and I believed. And almost every, well, all of our testimonies have that in them somewhere along the line. So water becomes a symbol of life throughout the Bible. And spiritually, we cannot live unless we come to Christ who gives us this living water as he told the woman at the well. And here is a, a broader idea of coming from Isaiah 55 where uh, this comes from, this threefold come. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy without money or something that has no price? Well, 
Pastor Ken told you this morning, if you listen closely to the Advent sermon, it's a gift. It's a gift. You don't buy a gift for yourself. You know, you purchase a gift at a price. This gift is beyond price. There is no price that you can have to it. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear, that your soul may live, and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David, Behold, I made him as a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. Should it surprise us if we read the Old Testament that the gospel was meant for the nations? In this new covenant age, we see it take place. In the Old, Test Old Testament, we don't see it happen very often, you know. Uh, but um, maybe here and there, one or two or a few, but it's for the nations. It's for the world, you know. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And it's worth, worth going just a little bit further down because um, it says, let he who desires take the water of life. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And we could keep going through Isaiah 55 but that's not our purpose here tonight. But do you see that idea of desire here? I mean, this, this is why some people are Arminians, to tell you the truth. Because they know that they wanted Christ. And we're telling people that nobody wants Christ. No natural man wants Christ. They'll run from God every time. And some will say, well, I didn't. I wanted him. You go a little deeper. Why did you want him? <laughs> what was it that made the difference? Because you didn't come to him. I, I doubt you came to him the first time you ever heard of him. You know? But you did come to him. You did. Why? Regeneration. Change of heart. It's what God does. And you'll notice when you hear a Christian talk, be they Arminian or Calvinist, if you're not in the Arminian-Calvinist debate, okay, you get in the debate and things are going to be different. Okay, it's going to say things that, that uh, really they wouldn't say normally. But when you say, um, are you Christian? Yes, God saved me. That's what they'll say. They'll give him the glory. And they won't say, you ask them, are you Christian? Yeah, I made my decision a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a little scary. But that's what will happen when people get their, their hankles up and want to, to fight doctrinally. They'll, they'll go that route with you. But you get them just without talking about doctrine and Calvinism, Arminianism, Pelagianism, those semi-Pelagianism, all those sorts of things. Then... They'll talk about God save me. And then listen to them pray. Because there is something in the Bible that says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that man. <laughs> um, okay. Not a good sign. But listen to them pray. Lord, I thank you, you know, for what you've done for me. You know, that's the way they'll pray. Okay.
True Christians pray that way. Back to Revelation 22. You, you know, you can't buy eternal life. It's free. But um, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a costly gift. It costs the lifeblood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And desire. You need, there's that great desire we have to come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. Once again. The fifth and final exhortation, and then of course the final benediction. The fifth and final exhortation found in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. <clears throat> Again, in a few circles, this is controversial. Um, I, I do know some people that are King James only folks. They'll use this verse and basically say, if you're using anything except the King James Version, this verse applies to you. You're taking away from the Word of God or you're adding to the Word of God. And that's not what the verse means. It's not talking about that. Okay. So what is it talking about? Uh, let me just say this about translations. You know, um, there, we have a reliable copy of the Word of God. A reliable copy. And there's nothing wrong with textual criticism if the textual criticism is being done honestly and fairly with a true desire to see what the Bible actually says. And uh, it's a great thing. So, uh, you know, we have in our English language uh, Bibles that are very reliable. The New King James is a good one. The ESV is a good one. New American Standard Bible are good ones. Uh, there are others that um, are good. Um, uh, the NIV, I don't recommend it for the simple reason that it uses dynamic equivalents, uh, which I don't think is the best way, although I'll tell you the truth. As you read the NIV, it sometimes um, brings forth our doctrine better than, than any other version. It's almost like, uh, you know. So, uh, but um, I, I don't like it because of dynamic equivalents. We really want to get back to the original languages as best as we can. And of course, knowing the original languages is a wonderful thing, but we would not expect uh, all Christians to do that. You know, we would not expect that. So, at any rate, uh, that has to do with Bible translations. This has to do with those that pervert the Word of God, tampering with the Scriptures. It's a serious offense because the Word of God is the Word of God. You try to change God's Word and you can only cause harm. You know, there are many ways to add and subtract from God's Word. Literally and intentionally is one way because we don't like something it says. And the cults will do that. They'll change it. They'll even have their own Bible translations and changing things that should not be changed. Uh, I remember being uh, in my Greek, I've told this story before, so I'll be quick, but in my, in my Greek class um, that I was studying up in Claremont, um, <laughs> the other, one of the fellows was a Mormon that was in that class. And we had to translate John 1, 1 out loud. And so uh, he translates it as a Mormon would. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Oops. <laughs> and my first professor stopped him and said, that's not what it says. 
translate what you know it says, you know. And he made him translate it the right way. And uh, the Mormon fellow didn't like it, you know. And I don't think my professor was even a Christian, but he was a knowledgeable man in the things of God and cared about it being translated properly. And sometimes he translated it improperly, I believe, because he put his own interpretations in there, just like the Mormon fellow did. But, and he didn't mind if he called him on it. And he'd say, well, that's another view that he can have to. So, but at any rate, that, that's, that's one way. If you purposely are perverting the word of God, is what it's talking about here. And you can do that intentionally. You can do it by false doctrine. You can do it by misinterpretation. God's word must be kept pure and be our final authority. The exhortation is literally to the book of Revelation itself, but it applies to all of Scripture. And adding to the word means the plagues of the book are added to the person. That's how serious it is. Again, it's willful and purposeful deception, hiding God's revelation, you know, ignoring what God wrote, and having what we want to have written. Because, let's face it, I'm going to ask you to check the deep recesses of your heart. We're almost done. How many times, I've done this, so I, I think maybe you have too. How many times have you read a passage of scripture and your evil heart thought, I wouldn't have never written it that way. <laughs> I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said it that way. God said it that way. It's the right way. We need to change our heart. We need to change our mind. We need to change our belief if we ever find that happening to us. We need to be careful as we handle the word of God because sometimes we will be mistaken in our interpretation. Sometimes we will need to be corrected on an error, but we should never willfully and purposely add or subtract from God's word for our own purposes. Final, verse 20. 49, 49 sermons would come to the end. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. And that's a great way to end the book, just like it was a great way to begin the book. I'll actually end with the beginning which says this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Revelation 1.3. Amen. Pastor Mike, would you come lead us in communion, please?